At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Emory Cinematheque is a series of free film screenings open to the public. The theme of this semester series is Camp Vibes Queer Feelings. Later this hour... Curator Dr. Ben Kruger-Robbins will tell us how the emotional, outrageous, and downright fun examples of queer and camp play across diverse media genres with movies and shows that also carry universal themes for everyone to enjoy. Plus, H. Johnson's Jazz Moment today features vocalist Gloria Lynn. First, Monopoly is the best-selling privately patented board game in history. The game often evokes strong emotions, grudges, and family rivalries. And aspects of the game made it into our pop cultural language, with terms such as get-out-of-jail-free cards and do-not-pass-go. The history behind the game tells a darker story than one might imagine. Ruthless, Monopoly's secret history, is a new film that sheds light on the origins of the iconic board game. The PBS documentary is part of the series American Experience, which airs on our TV station and is streaming now on PBS Passport. Emmy Award-winning writer and director Stephen Ives of Insignia Films joins me now via Zoom to talk about his documentary. Welcome to City Lights. Thanks, Lois. Very nice to be with you. Oh, great to have you and to learn so much about this story. How did the documentary come about? Well, one day I was just came across a, a book written by a, a guy uh, called The Great Billion Dollar Monopoly Swindle. And I thought that sounds like an intriguing story. And I looked into it and found out that there was this 
secret history about America's favorite board game that I knew absolutely nothing about. And it felt like a fascinating lens to look at American life and culture and, and our ideas of who we are and what we believe. Hmm. So please explain how a game initially designed to be a critique of capitalism turned out to be a celebration of it at its worst. Well, it was originally designed actually by a woman in 1904. Her name was Lizzie McGee, and she was a bit of a radical and sort of bit of a socialist. She was a follower of a very famous and well-regarded writer and, and theorist named Henry George. George's idea was that there should only be one tax in America, and that should be on land, and that monopolies of land were the root of most of the inequality and most of the problems that you came across in American society. And Lizzie McGee was a big follower of George's, and she decided to develop a board game that she called the Landlord's Game, which showed off the sins of monopolistic capitalism. And she designed it oddly with two sets of rules. The first set is the kind of rules that we're all familiar with, where you compete to buy property and, and crush your opposition, and the winner is the last person standing. And the other set was a, a set that she designed along the single tax Henry George principles. And though that was designed for a more communal approach where a lot of the resources went into supporting the community. And not surprisingly, that game was kind of complicated and, and involved, and it didn't catch on. And what caught on was that bare knuckles, unfettered, crusher opposition game that we all love today. I love in the film how one of the scholars describes her as a performance artist. You really elevate her role. I think many people are grateful to have been introduced to her through this film. What more can you tell us about Lizzie McGee? Well, she really was ahead of her time. She was a feminist. She was a sort of an inventor. She came up with a patent. She was a typist. She came up with a patent about how to make old manual typewriters work better. And she was in some ways a performance artist. She put an advertisement in the newspaper that advertised herself as a young American woman slave. And she solicited offers. And to her dismay, she actually received some. But the whole idea was to make a joke and, and shine a spotlight on what she felt were deep, structural inequalities that held women back in Gilded Age America. And she got profiled in Joseph Pulitzer's newspapers, and she was really quite a celebrity. And in many ways, she was just way ahead of her time. And I, I really admire her. She was someone who was willing to go out and take provocative stands to try and advance her ideas. Hmm. Now, Charles Darrow was originally credited with inventing the game basically stole the idea after playing a version of it with friends one night. And those people were Quakers, correct? Correct, yes. They were a group of people who lived in Atlantic City. And what happened was the game sort of spread from Lizzie McGee's original inception. She took it to Parker Brothers and they turned it down. She couldn't sell it. 
So it started to spread as what we kind of think of as a folk game and people would customize their own boards and add their own street names. And it eventually found its way to a group of Quakers who lived in Atlantic City. And Quakers are not the kind of people that you assume or associate with America's favorite vacation playground of the 1920s. But <laughs> I mean, and I'm a Quaker on my mother's side. So this is something I know a little bit about. And, and yet they were successful business people down in, in Atlantic City. And they were the ones that added the iconic names like Baltic and Mediterranean and Ventnor Avenue and Marvin Gardens to the board. Not, to, of course, not to mention Park Place and, board, and the boardwalk. And Darrow got wind of the game and he asked the friend to type him up some rules. And then before you know it, he claimed that he was the inventor and he was out trying to sell it on his own. Hmm. Please tell us the story of Ralph Ansbach to whom your film is dedicated. Yes, he's a wonderful guy. He was the author of that first book I came across. And he was a kind of rumpled in economics professor from uh, the Bay Area. And he was a German Jewish emigre. He'd fled the Nazis as a, as a boy, his family. And he hated monopolies. He thought they were an example of how to mess up the capitalist system. And during the OPEC crisis, he was particularly angry at the Middle Eastern oil cartel, and he came up with his own game, and he called it anti-monopoly. And it started to sell pretty well in the Bay Area. And then he got a scary letter in the mail from General Mills, the serial conglomerate, who at that point had taken over Parker Brothers. And they threatened him. They claimed he was infringing on their trademark, and they threatened all sorts of nasty things if he didn't take it off the market. And if that had happened to me or you, Lois, I think our first reaction would have been, okay, sure, you know, whatever you want, big corporation. And Ralph said, no way. And he sued them first in California, and he decided to fight. And his 10-year legal battle took him all the way to the steps of the United States Supreme Court. And it was that legal struggle that helped uncover the long-concealed history of Lizzie McGee and, and the game's origins. Oh, it is a stunning story. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrights, speaking with the Emmy Award-winning writer and director Stephen Ives. The Parker Brothers game Monopoly was widely introduced to the American public toward the end of the Great Depression. Stephen, it seems there are a number of reasons for the game's appeal during that time. How would you enumerate them? Well, that's one of the great things about games. They're, they're a space where we take on new roles. We get to role play. We get to have fun. We get to, I mean, who else? Who, when, when In what other context do you get to become a huge grasping capitalist that's crushing the competition all around you. <laughs> I mean, maybe some guys on Wall Street do that every day. I don't know, but they are, it's a wonderful place to try out personalities. And I think people in the American, in, in the depression, in the great depression were down on their luck. They were, were desperately looking for some ray of sunshine. They were watching Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers dance in white tie and tails and evening gowns. They, they wanted to be reminded that there was something other than the dreary, depressing nature of their lives. And board games were cheap. 
They were good ways to get together with friends and they took you out of yourself for a moment. And Monopoly was a perfect example of that. And I think it's one of the reasons it caught on. Another appealing characteristic of the game, which you bring out in the film and is not reflected in real life, is that everyone starts off with the same amount of money, an equal playing field. Indeed. I mean, it's the game is based on this myth that we all have the same opportunities and it's just a question of pluck and perseverance and skill to rise to the top. And we all know that there are huge structural barriers to that kind of fable, be they race or gender or class or inheritance. And so it's a sort of a Potemkin village. It's a Potemkin town in a way. It's a, it's a, a great American creation that is an idealized vision of what we want American capitalism to be, but it really isn't a very accurate reflection of the reality. Although going back to those street names, it was disturbing to see how the names of the different properties on the board reflected the neighborhoods in which those people lived. Yeah, and that's what's kind of interesting. The Quakers unwittingly created a kind of a snapshot of race and class in their community. I mean, Baltic and Mediterranean were the black parts of town. They were the least expensive properties. The yellow properties and the green properties were more middle-class boarding houses. And of course, we forget what a segregated place Atlantic City was in the 20s. And if you were an immigrant, you came to Atlantic City in part to prove your whiteness. And one way to do that was to hire a black man to push you in a, in a cart down the boardwalk. And that's a more sobering reality check on, on what the Monopoly board is a reflection of. Atlantic City and many parts of the North were far more segregated than we ever assume or like to, like to believe. Another impressive feature of the documentary is the scholars whom you have on camera. I had no idea this was an area of academic study, gaming. How, how did you come across these experts? Well, gosh, they're, they're fabulous game nerds everywhere, you know? <laughs> and, but I, I know what you mean, Lois. I mean, you wouldn't think that there'd be University of Chicago and all these big universities have. NYU has a really big game lab. Oh, there's, no. there's a wonderful conference called Games for Change, which happens in New York every year, which is about trying to make sure that video games are uh, advancing socially, you know, good causes. And and what you don't stop to think about is exactly how pervasive games really are in our culture. I mean, I think the best-selling video game Grand Theft Auto 4 sold something like $3 billion worth of games in the first weekend that it was released. So the gaming industry dwarfs Hollywood, it dwarfs music, it dwarfs any of these other industries that we think of as being so culturally relevant and important. And I think that's an important message that games have a real power and real influence in our culture. And I think that was one of Lizzie McGee's great insights is that she felt like if she could embed Henry George's ideas about equality and social reform inside a game, then people would start learning those ideas 
in an almost subconscious way. But any of us who've played games remember and realize that those lessons often really stick with you. And I think that's what's sort of the secret to the power and allure of games in our culture today. Well, thanks to Ruthless Monopoly Secret History, I came away with wanting to learn more about Lizzie McGee. I think she deserves a U.S. postage stamp. (laughs) I agree, too. I think that's a great idea. And I think there should be a statue to Ralph Ansbach in Berkeley or on the campus of San Francisco State. You've truly made him a hero. But perhaps your film is a monument to him. Well, I'm glad to hear that. He's a really admirable guy. I just wish he could have lived long enough to have seen the final film, but I I take my hat off to him. He was a, a real fighter and he got justice in the end, which is really a great story. Emmy Award-winning writer and director Stephen Ives, Ruthless Monopoly Secret History is streaming on PBS Passport as part of the American Experience series. And more information is available on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, we'll head to camp with the curator behind Emory Cinematheque's film series, Camp Vibes Queer Feelings. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. A rich canon of queer camp film is screening at Emory University in their Cinematech series with the theme Camp Vibes Queer Feelings. The films and TV episodes selected span from the 1960s to 2022 and present a rainbow of adventures in aesthetic envelope-pushing. Joining me now via Zoom is the series curator and visiting assistant professor of film and media studies at Emory, Dr. Ben Kruger-Robbins. 
Welcome to City Lights. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Now, the theme, Camp Vibes, Queer Feelings, explores genres of filmmaking long undervalued by critics and cherished by LGBTQ plus audiences. Many have cult fandoms across identity spectrums. Would you tell us how you hit upon this thematic umbrella to tie in films you considered important to see and discuss? These films are, as you already so eloquently mentioned, selected from a variety of genres that don't usually get a fair amount of critical fanfare or critical recognition. And it's primarily because of the low status of horror slashers from the 1980s, musical screwball comedies, a variety of delegitimated genres, that these films have such resonance for a variety of audiences, queer and otherwise. But I started in 1964, around the time that Susan Sontag's essay, Notes on Camp, was first written so that we could have a film that came into public recognition, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, arriving simultaneously with that essay that brought the term camp into the public lexicon and trying to extend the relevance of Sontag's recognition of camp framing, of queer subversive pleasures into the present day, ending the series with films like Saved and TV programs like The Righteous Gemstones. In between, the camp titles span a number of international movement so that we can take camp outside the register of the white American gay male sensibility and bring it into Spanish filmmaking of the post-Franco era, into the Japanese new wave, into the cultures of black exploitation, and into overtly feminist lesbian films like But I'm a Cheerleader in the late 1990s. So it's an attempt to broaden the idea of camp through a diverse selection of films culled from different film movements and time periods. Ben, you mentioned this pivotal 1964 essay by Susan Sontag, Notes on Camp, and she identified camp aesthetic as emerging long before the 20th century, possibly appearing in wealthy societies as long as they've existed. Examples she gave include Mozart, El Greco, and Dostoevsky, though not Beethoven nor Rembrandt. Not sure why. How do you define camp? That's such a great question because camp has, by definition, a slippery nature. And I think that's evident in Sontag's essay, which has 
a, a sort of arbitrary list of camp works attached to it. And I'm glad that you bring up the history of camp as well and its recognition long before Sontag's essay. And I would add as a working class and queer sensibility, something underground, something coded, something latent that Susan Sontag in some ways appropriates and tries to define. But I, I consider that particular essay a camp work in and of itself, in that it's, <laughs> it, it's not fully serious. And some of her omissions and some of the arbitrary notes may be there as kind of a performative exercise, that this is a type of parody, and indeed parody is central to camp. To, to get to your question, though, about how one might define it, this is something that the Cinematheque attempts to grapple with in various ways by expanding and indeed politicizing the notion of camp. Sontag understands camp as explicitly non-political, and that's part of the problem of that essay. Later authors, including one that I find very affectively important is Jack Babusio's The Cinema of Camp, Camp and the Gay Sensibility, where he defines camp as pertinent to four categories, to aesthetics, to theatricality, to irony, and to humor. And he recognizes camp as in these ways, particularly important to marginalized groups and individuals who can find a way to subvert the social systems that they're often subject to and ultimately break free of them in ways that are fun, in ways that might on the surface be non-serious. And I think that's where a lot of the import of camp lies, political camp. <laughs> Listening to you speak, John Waters immediately jumps to mind. I adore his work, and most recently his novel, which may be the funniest thing I've ever read. It's unthinkable to present a film series on camp without including something from John Waters. You've chosen polyester. What gifts do you think polyester in particular bestows upon the genre. As you mentioned, Lois, I think there could be an entire camp series exclusively on the work of John Waters. And indeed, it was difficult figuring out which of his films to select, if, if only one title. And what I adore about polyester is it marks a point of transition in his career from his early films as an experimental practitioner in the tradition of Andy Warhol or Jack Smith or Kenneth Anger, but somebody so much more crass and therefore delightful in his craft, the multiple maniacs, Mondo Trasho films, to the more 
accessible, mainstream, but nonetheless extremely delightful productions like Hairspray in the 1980s. And Polyester is a wonderful bridge in that way because it has the really crass, crude elements of his early film worked into the production of a Hollywood aspirant with a deep love of classical melodrama with the latent pleasures of classical Hollywood cinema. And I feel like Polyester in particular combines these components seamlessly and makes camp pleasures, makes the crude, makes the crass accessible and pleasurable for an audience outside of the underground circuit. And in fact, for our screening of Polyester, we have the Odorama scratch and sniff cards that were originally distributed (laughs) with the film, which adds just an additional sensory component to what's already a really bodily uh, film, a very, very visceral film. (laughs) Ben, is it going too far to say there's a sweetness about John Waters. There is a sweetness and charm about John Waters that radiates through all of his movies beyond the overt shock tactics. As I indicated before, there's a very deep-seated love of classical aesthetics. His films have very optimistic endings for the most part. They're about people of various identities and various social positionings breaking free of regulation. It's in some way the Hollywood ideal that John Waters envisions and wants to replicate. And this is a point that runs through the entire series, I I think, is that these are films that will often crass or will often illegitimate in some way on their surface have an optimism and an expressive joy about them that's indeed very contagious. There were audience members walking out singing from Car Wash, a musical comedy that nonetheless is very political in the way that it deploys camp. And I think John Waters taps into that energy through his entire au and is a a director who who seeks to please and has his cadre of artists and collaborators, the Dreamlanders, who tap into the optimism and affirmation of his projects. That that's what is so sweet about about John Waters. Oh, I agree. If you are just tuning in, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes, and my guest is Dr. Ben Kruger-Robbins, curator of Emory Cinematheque's film series, Camp Vibes, Queer Feelings. Now, among the films being screened, you've peppered in episodes from TV series as well. I'm particularly intrigued by the second event selections, you showed Batman the movie yeah, and an episode from the TV show Bewitched. Uh, how did those go together as a double feature? And how did Batman play a pivotal role in Camp Couture? 
<laughs> yes, uh, I, I thought that TV was really essential to this series because in some ways, television itself is a camp medium. It was delegitimized from its earliest incarnations. It was positioned in a feminized way as an object in the home, often for the pleasure of housewives listening to soap operas during the day. And the programming on TV was through the end of the network era, based in archetypes, in surface conceits, in very clear-cut genres, but could offer what Horace Newcomb calls a cultural forum to engage with different subjectivities uh, within those limitations. And so it, it was really important for me to, alongside films like Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, kind of auteurist productions within the Hollywood system to present TV shows and the films that developed from them as part of the ideas offered, the discourses offered in the Cinematheque. And Batman and Bewitched were two such great examples because Batman the film was a sort of first season finale for the show. It was a theatrically released film scripted by Lorenzo Semple, who wrote most episodes of the TV program. But in its aestheticization, it was really an hour and 45 minute long episode of the TV show. It kept the onomatopoeias as Batman beat up the cadre of villains uh, towards the end. It kept the playful banter uh, and terrible jokes exchanged between Batman and Robin, the grotesque and outlandish performances of the actors playing the villain, Cesar Romero, Burgess Meredith, in the film Lee Merriweather as Catwoman. But it was determined to maintain the show's tone of a comic strip, of playfulness, of easy morals, but with visual subversiveness leading in that direction of the reification of social norms. And Bewitched was just as sly in terms of its politics. Lynn Spiegel has described shows like Bewitched as fantastic family sitcoms in the 1960s, programs that often took the suburban sitcom narrative and transported it to some kind of fantastic setting or scenario, but in that formula was able to upend a number of social norms. And the episode of Bewitched that I selected for the Cinematheque in which we watched together is one that emphasizes Agnes Moorhead's performance as the witch and Dora, Samantha's scheming mother-in-law, but also brings in another queer character Uncle Arthur and Dora's brother, played by Paul Lind. He's delightful. He's a charmer. And the episode, the heart of the episode is surrounding their queer theatrics and the way that they're able to bring straight America in the characters of Darren and Samantha into the realm of camp play. Darren Stevens starts quacking on a duck horn and running around the living room in flamboyant style as he becomes the butt of 
and Dora and Arthur's jokes, but he enjoys that releasing of his flamboyant persona. So it's an episode that while we're returned by the end to a rather traditional conclusion that the camp spirit has been released, the genie has been released from its bottle, and it can't be put back in. And these are characters whose flamboyance and sense of queer joy radiates across the entire series. And Dora is in almost every single episode, and Arthur makes 12 appearances. So it, it's just a pleasure to behold. Mm. Now, there are some picks among the films that seem refreshingly outside the box for critical academia. The Adams Family being one, I see why it's camp, but why else does the Adams Family resonate with queer audiences? Yeah. Well, and here we have two historically different incarnations of the Adams Family put together. Uh, an episode of the 1960s TV show, which is an affective touchstone for queer audiences because of how a family as abnormal and on the fringes of society is presented as loving and wholesome. Gomez and Morticia Adams are a couple who are constantly ostracized, who have strange, bizarre encounters with the straight world. And yet they embody in some ways an ideal heterosexual romance. They express passion for one another. They regard each other as social equals. They have an amorous fondness. And their children, while defying appropriate gender roles, Pugsley and Wednesday, are beloved in the same way. So for queer viewers, this might be kind of an ideal family formation, just because they are so strong strange and yet so ideal at the same time. And the Adams are assisted not only by their blood relatives, but by the odd characters that inhabit their world, by Thing, the disembodied hand that strategically places items for their benefit, by Lurch, their charming Frankenstein-esque butler, by Cousin It, again, a, a non-human manifestation of family. So the 1960s version is affectively important in that way. And indeed, John Astin, who plays Gomez Adams, had a sort of queer following and queer affinity and directed many episodes of Bewitched as well. So there's crossover between these programs. But then the 1994 film Adams Family Values, which I think is just a gem of a movie has an explicitly queer coding to uh, its screenplay. Uh, it was written by Paul Rudnick, an out gay man, at a moment when political conservatism was ascendant. Newt Gingrich's contract with America was forthcoming at this particular moment. And the Adams Family values, without a hint of meanness, subverts 
ideals of social conservatism, subverts notions of white supremacy, allows for various queer-coded characters to take center stage in a film that's about the joys of social failure and the joys of being on the margins of society and yet upholding values of humaneness, of charity. So I think this is why both that film version and the TV show have cultivated such a, a queer following, not to mention that the the visuals in both the program and the film are just so over-the-top, outrageous, and flamboyant. There's a, a Thanksgiving Day pageant the kids perform as part of their summer camp that turns into bloody mayhem. And this occurs in a PG-rated film targeted at families, not a place where you would expect gore and mutilation to enter the picture. And yet it manages to remain wholesome somehow. Hmm. Well, I have to say, having watched the entire series of Wednesday, <laughs> I think we binged it. <laughs> it keeps up the high standard. Do you agree? Did you see it? It does. It does. I have I have seen it, and I'm so glad that Netflix has sort of revived the Addams Family franchise beyond the most recent movies and kept with the aesthetics and the performative sensibilities that were so central to the show and to Barry Sonnenfeld's 1990s movies. It's so great to see Camp Alive on TV, streaming or otherwise. The series will end with two selections that challenge religion and tradition, exposing how dramatically religion and tradition are challenged by queerness. These are the 2004 film Saved and an episode from the HBO TV series The Righteous Gemstones. And what do these two selections reveal about many religious communities' fear of queerness and otherness? Yeah, these, both the film and the TV show, cap a series that has a strain of religious satire running through it. Certainly Pedro Almodovar's 1983 film Dark Habit set entirely in a convent that at one time had served as a haven to the socially marginalized upends the Franco regime's use of Catholicism to retain social control, while at the same time, perhaps in a contradictory way, affirming some of Catholicism's more charitable religious values and manifestations. And in the same way, Saved and the Righteous Gemstones, I think of as films that while they were derided by a number of religious organizations as blasphemous in some way. This is a series all about blasphemy and upending social expectations and challenging institutions. At the same time, I think Saved is a deeply 
Christian film that recognizes that homophobia and other forms of social marginalization are not sanctioned religious values. They're gross permutations of religious orthodoxy or teaching. And so I wanted to end the series with these two examples of media. Um, Righteous Gemstones operates in very much the same way. On its surface, it is uh, a parody of the family presiding over a Texas megachurch, but beneath that, it explores each of these characters and their social contradictions, their contradictions in identity, in extremely humane, understanding, compassionate ways. And I think that this is part of the sincerity that ironically undergirds camp, something that's supposed to be crass about surfaces. But by penetrating those surfaces, those archetypes, those understandings of institutions, it gets at complex levels of humanity that exist underneath them. So ironically, I find these two films as concluding the series in a very affirmative way for groups that might not initially see themselves in camp presentations. And I think that that speaks to some of the universal themes of a lot of the movies and TV shows throughout the series. So I thought that on one hand, it would be a really flamboyant, provocative way to end the series with that untouchable topic of religion front and center, but also a humanistic way of ending that calls understanding across boundaries of identity and community formation. Dr. Ben Kruger-Robbins, Emory Cinematheque series of free films, Camp Vibes, Queer Feelings, Screens through April 19th in Whitehall on the Emory campus. More information about this series is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Coming up, music contributor H. Johnson stops by for the newest edition of H. Johnson's Jazz Moment. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. WABE's H. Johnson has been with our station since 1978 as host of both blues classics and jazz classics. H educates and entertains WABE listeners every Friday and Saturday night. He joins us every other Friday to share some of his encyclopedic knowledge of jazz. This is H. Johnson's Jazz Moment. You know, Lois, it's an absolute pleasure and an honor to come on your program at your invitation and expose the absence of great artists who came and then they left us. And sometimes the public and the media have a tendency to forget great artists. And I was talking to a young lady. I went to a a school 
one afternoon. It was a real young girl there practicing singing with one of the professors. And she sounded familiar to me. There was something she was doing in her singing that reminded me of someone. And I, I asked her, I said, have you listened? Have you heard Gloria Lynn? And she screamed, yes, yes, that's my favorite. That's what I wish I could sing like. And I told her, I heard it. Some of the things that Gloria did, you were phrasing. She said, how old are you? I said, I'm old enough to remember Gloria Lynn. <laughs> and uh, yeah, she's no, Gloria Lynn is no longer with us, but it was, a, it was an absolute pleasure to meet a young lady who listened to Gloria Lynn and wanted to emulate her. I asked her, where did she get the uh, knowledge about Gloria Lynn from? She said, her father. And mother played a lot of Gloria Lynn records when she was coming up. And so I decided I'd share my like and that young lady's admiration for Miss Gloria Lynn. She, she's been gone since 2013. I won't tell you what her age was at the time because it's impolite. Had a style of her own. She was in the same league as Sarah Vaughan and Ella Fitzgerald and uh, Carmen McRae, Peggy Lee. Oh, man. Anito Day. But she she didn't get the recognition that she so deserved. I don't know whether it was because of the lack of a lot of exposure, although she did make a lot of recordings, or a lot of the lack of exposure could also be that no one would play her records on the air. I heard her on the air, though. Right now, I would just like to share some of her music with your listening audience and you too, Lois. Let's see now. Gloria Lynn. Gloria, she sang all the standards. There are recordings out there by her you can still get. She sang tunes like My Funny Valentine. and She does a tremendous, horrendous job with uh, the folks who live on the hill. And then there was I Should Care, Don't Worry About Me, Serenade in Blue. You know that one? I, when I hear that serenade in blue. Beautiful Stella by Starlight she does, Autumn Leaves. I tell you what, though, Lois. Before I split, a split is a colloquial term. A lot of people, you, you have a lot of dignified people listening to your program who might, might not <laughs> entertain the idea of using colloquialisms. I can't help it. That's the bag I'm in. All right. There's another colloquialism. I'm, that's the bag I'm in. Anyhow, let's get a little more serious. Let's do something by Gloria Lynn so I can cut out my nonsense. Let's do uh, I'm Glad There Is You because there's still some people who would recognize it. And those of you to her phrasing, her diction, her enunciation, and her, her delivery. It's just, it's, it's awesome. Gloria Lynn doing, I'm glad there's you. And while she's doing that, I'm going to sneak on out of here where I can turn on the radio somewhere and listen to it myself. This world of ordinary people, extraordinary people. I'm glad there is you. W A B E's H Johnson. And our series, H. Johnson's Jazz Moment. Today, he featured jazz vocalist Gloria Lynn. You can hear the full-length version of I'm Glad There Is You on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Catch H.'s Blues Classics show tonight and every Friday night beginning at 10. 
And do return for jazz classics every Saturday night beginning at 8 here on 90.1 WABE. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Monday at 11 a.m. we'll hear about the Atlanta Opera's new production of Candide. Plus, City Lights senior producer Kim Drobes catches up with Liz Stokes, lead singer of The Beths. If you missed part of today's show, like my earlier conversation with the filmmaker behind Ruthless, Monopoly's Secret History, you could catch up through our podcast or on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you will find our complete archive of interviews, so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. Our theme music is the first time written and performed by Joe Granston with his jazz band, courtesy of Hot Shoe Records. City Light senior producer is Kim Drobes. Our producers are Summer Evans and Janine Etter, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. We'd love for you to connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on both Facebook and Instagram. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. Sounds Like ATL is a music documentary series that takes an in-depth look at the artists amplifying Atlanta's famed music community. Built around a desire to highlight Atlanta's diverse and world-renowned music scene, each episode features unforgettable, intimate musical performances by fresh new musical guests, each with exclusive interviews about the stories behind their music. Listen at wabe.org or wherever you find your podcasts. Ever wondered where to find the best dumplings in town? Curious about Atlanta's obsession with lemon pepper? Join us on Savory Stories, a new podcast as we uncover the untold tales behind Atlanta's culinary scene. From the roots of your favorite dishes to the creators that bring them to life, we're diving deep into the heart of the city's food culture. Listen to Savory Stories at wabe.org slash podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. W-A-B-E. 